You are listening to the sermon podcast of Nielsville Presbyterian Church, a Christ-centered church in Germantown, Maryland. To learn more about Nielsville, visit us online at nielsville.org. We have been going through a series called Incarnation Through the Eyes of. We looked at the incarnation through the eyes of Joseph as the angel appeared to him in a dream, bearing the news that he was going to be the father of, of the savior of the world. We see his reaction, his fear, then his faith. We saw the inclination through the eyes of Mary as Gabriel came to her and said that he, she's going to conceive the savior of the world. And two, that we see as she wrestled through that good news of what that meant as a young teenage girl to carry the savior of the world, the eternal king, the God-man. And then last week we saw the shepherds as the angel appeared to them in the fields. The glory of the Lord shone upon them and they too faced fear, but then the angels reassured them and gave them grace and pointed them and showed them where they should go to see that the Savior has been born. This morning we look through the incarnation through the eyes of the Magi or the wise men. So follow along as I read from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on the way. And behold, the star that had, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and mirth. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, again, we gather around your word. We thank you for it. We thank you for this, this opportunity that we can hear the word read and now we hear the word preached. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us, that you would change us, that you would convict us, that we would, we would receive in the gift of salvation and that we would worship this Jesus who has come to save us. Do that work of grace even now as we uh, look at this word together. Amen. We all respond differently when we read the news or hear the news or through social media or even through sports analysis. Now I'm going to say a very controversial statement as it relates to men's basketball. I'm going to tell you 
and it's going to stir up some responses among you that the Duke basketball program under Coach K is probably the best basketball program there is, and that they have, uh-oh, Chad's running out of the room, and that they, he's one of my responses, and that he, and that they have the best, most talented three freshmen uh, um, ever this year. Now, I will get a variety of response, much like Chad, who's from the University of North Carolina, and many of you who go to the University of Maryland College Park, that Duke and um, Maryland were a rival for many times. If you're a Kentucky fan or, or a, a Kansas fan, you're going to say, no way, we hate Duke. There's no way that statement is true. Or I don't want to submit to that statement, even if it was true, and it is. <laughs> Chad, you didn't say amen or anything like that. <laughs> There's another response, though, of, okay, of the experts. Yeah, they look, read the statistics, they study their program, they say, yeah, they are the best program, but yet they really don't want to make them their favorite team, but they, all the reports say that they, that they are. That's another response. Or there's a response of those who follow the experts and say, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, they seem to be right, but you know what, I'm just too embarrassed to say that I'm a Duke fan. Because I'm, you know, I'm afraid what people might think about me. They might, they might cast me out like Chad does to me now, since I acknowledge Duke is the best team, right? Or there could be another response of those who want to know more. Jeff, maybe you might be right, and so I want to discover for myself if this is true. Or on the most grander scale, we come to the story that the wise men. And we see four different responses. Like Herod, there are people who are vigilantly against Jesus. Like the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of the day, they were religiously against Jesus. Then we see like the people of God, the people of Jerusalem are complacent against Jesus. And then we see like the wise men or the magi, they are for Jesus and they come and believe and worship him. So let's look first at those like Herod who are vigilantly against Jesus. I just read Matthew 3 to 8, but let me add 16 when it says this. When Herod, when he saw that they had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed, killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years older or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So who is this King Herod? Who is he? Well, he's, he was a gifted youth, admired by the Jewish people um, for the most part, and for the Romans. And he became known as Herod the Great. The reason why he became known as Herod the Great was that he was a master builder. He built a magnificent temple in Jerusalem. In fact, one wall of that temple, the Wailing Wall, still stands today. But sadly, as he grew in his reign and in his age, he grew in cruelty, and he became more paranoid. He was bent on doing anything to retain power. No one was going to take away his power. He wanted everyone in that, in that area to worship and bow down to him. He even killed his wife and his three sons. He was also a puppet king. He was appointed by the emperor of Rome, who ruled Palestine. So, so Herod was an appointed governor of Galilee that became known as the king of Judah. That's who King Herod is. What is his response? Okay, all of a sudden he sees this huge entourage come. And this, there's some people that are asking, some magi that are asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
Now think about it. King Herod was one who, who wanted to retain his, his kingship. He wanted no one else to be honored as king. And so he hears this news from these men that, hey, there's, there's, who is this who's been born king of the Jews? And what, what does it say? He is greatly troubled by the news, much like Chad was troubled when I said that about Duke, right? But even more so, he brings religious leaders then to find out if the news was true. See, according to Herod's understanding, the Jewish people were waiting, were expecting the Messiah soon to, be, soon to come. And so he is seriously, and he's carefully considering these words from the, this, what, these magi. Because he's going to say, he's wondering, how will it affect me if he's truly the king? If this newborn baby is truly the king, how will, it, how will this affect my reign? See, he was freaking out. He was threatened by that question, brother wise man. And he sees it politically. He, he alone wants to be king. And he wants nobody else to take that from him. And he knew also because he's not from the throne of David. That's where the Messiah is to come. He's not really even, he's not even Jewish. He's not from the tribe of Judah. And so he knows that if this king is that, if this baby is that, fulfills that prophecy, he knows that his, his, his gig is going to be up very soon. And so as a result, he orders the execution of all males two years or under that, so that Jesus would be killed. Why two years or under? Well, probably Magi did not show up like we see here in the Divinity scene. They have come weeks, months, or maybe a year later or so because they come from a far land. And we'll talk about that a little bit in a moment. But here in, in King Herod's response, we see him representing those who are diligently against Jesus. In fact, Herod is a type of an antichrist. He, he's doing satanic work. As an anti-king, he used force to kill the true king, or trying to kill the true king, by murdering other infants. And yet, by God's grace, Jesus was protected by God's supreme power. King Herod is so different than King Jesus. For this gene, King Jesus, this baby that we, 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 we celebrate this season has come, as Luke chapter 4 reminds us, to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set liberty at those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's the king that we are submitting to, the one who's worthy of submission. And yet we see many people villagely against Jesus, countries and rulers who are, who are imprisoning Christians or killing Christians. And yet even to our extent, um, those who are villaging against, against Jesus are, in effect, those who are not unwilling to submit to the loving rule of Christ. Every time that we are refusing to submit ourselves to Christ, in a sense, we are vigilantly against Jesus. Don't miss the king, this king who has come to save us from our sins and to restore us in a right relationship with him. But not only were they irreligious against Jesus, we see that the religious were against him. Why do I say that? Look at verses 4 and 6 of Matthew 2. Like the Jewish leaders, we are religiously against Jesus. Look, it says, as King Herod heard the news, he assembles the experts, right? All the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired them where Christ was to be born, and they told them. He told, he told, they told Herod. He said, in Bethlehem of Judah, so it is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, and by no means least among the rulers of Judah, 
for from you shall come a ruler who shall, will shepherd my people Israel. Now, as I read that section, let me ask you, do you notice anything strange about this passage? Do you notice anything strange? Look at it. They recite the truth. They give the truth, but they do nothing about it. Here they are, the Jewish leaders, the, the religious experts, the theologians, the high priests. They know the truth. They know the scripture. They quote the scripture, but they use it only to inform Herod. They don't seem even to tell their congregation that a baby has been born who claims to be king. See, they have all the right answers. They quote scripture beautifully. They, they quote this passage about Messiah, about the Messiah, and yet they refuse to go. And they refuse to check out the newborn king who's, who is Jesus. You see, there's religious against Jesus. We have the knowledge. We know about the promised Messiah, but there's no help, heartfelt conviction and love of God and his word. Jesus, in Luke chapter 5, as, he, as he's talking to the religious leaders of the day, those who are proud and arrogant, as he's answering them about some things about what Jesus has been doing, Jesus answers these religious leaders. He says, he says this to them. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Don't miss the king. We just can't focus on the adversaries and the religious of the day. We now turn our attention to those who have known to be belonging to God, the day-to-day -day followers of God, the people of Jerusalem. We see that the people like that are complacent against Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter three, or chapter two, verse three. It says, when Herod heard the king, when, the, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. All of Jerusalem was troubled. When the king was troubled, the people in Jerusalem were troubled. It's much like when I am troubled in my household, my whole household is troubled. My wife says, amen, <laughs> right? The people of Jerusalem watch and listen through this, this interaction that, that the Jewish leaders were speaking to, to Herod. And they listened, they were alarmed. They, many of them were waiting and wanting Messiah to come as well. But their alarm wasn't that the news that the Messiah, the king, is born. But what will, what will the mean hateful Herod do with the news and how will it affect them personally, corporately? They were satisfied just to listen to the scriptures quoted. They, they were satisfied just to listen to the prophecy being told again, and yet they do nothing. See, they were complacent against Jesus. Their people of Jerusalem knew about the truth, even think it's good, but they don't, the news doesn't at all seem to affect them or change them at all. King Jesus warns, even then offers grace to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. Listen to what he says to those who fall into that complacent category. He says this. this is, he's talking to the people of God. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. 
not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. This is Jesus speaking. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. What a great offer of grace. And so as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. C.S. Lewis in his book, Screwtape Letters, I think captures Satan's desire to keep us complacent. Has anybody read Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis? Some of you have. Well, Screwtape is the senior officer demon. <laughs> um, and he is writing these letters to Worworm, who is um, his nephew. Who is, um, and he's trying to get this, his, they call patient, to, to, to not be a faithful follower of God, and in fact, to turn to Satan. And he says this in his open, one of his letters. He says, I hope my last letter has convinced you that through the dullness or dryness, though which your patient is going at present, will not in itself give you his soul, but needs to be properly exploited. Got it right this time. And so he says, this is what I want you to do. Talk to him about moderation in all things. If you can at once get him to the point of thinking that religion is all very well up to a point, you can feel quite happy about his soul. Listen to this. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, but more amusing. Friends, don't miss the king. He has come as our savior to reconcile us, to renew us, and to restore us. And that's the good news that we see in this last response, the response of the wise men or the magi. They are for Jesus. Look again in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 and 9 and 12. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star when it, was, it, it rose and have come to worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with, with, mother, his, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and mirth. Who are these wise men? Well, Brian took a little bit of my thunder today, but that's fine. He did a good job. Good job. Thanks. See if you're paying attention. Right? Uh, there has been much writings on who these wise men were. Were they wise men? Were they magi? Were they, were they kings? And you'll have different people from following in different camps. Well, here we go. Here's my understanding as I read a lot of this stuff. I will say this. that the, First of all, the term magi here in the that Matthew uses in the precise Greek is what he's using. It means magi, that's the Greek word. His story demonstrates that, that the magis were astrologers. And what, what are astrologers? They studied the stars. They, were, they wanted to know what the stars were communicating 
to us. And they were also interpreters of dreams, of signs, of omens. What's interesting, though, the Hebrew translation um, often in the Old Testament is wise men. So I think that's why we call them wise men. The Greek was magi. In the Old Testament, they're known as wise men. And as Brian reminded us, not necessarily three, and we're not sure, they're not really kings. Although, I would say, as advisors to the king, I like what you said, future, what did, I like that word, what did you say? Yeah, advisor of future affairs, I think that's a great title. Maybe we need one in our government, who knows? (laughs) Um, Anyway, but, so, because they had a great reputation, much like Daniel and Joseph in the Old Testament, um, they rose to a sense of royal status. They had, they had somewhat of authority of a king, yet they were not royalty or kings, but they had the authority of it. So maybe there's some, there's some there that there's some parallel. That's why we got that they were kings. But they were not necessarily kings. They were advisors. They had the ability to interpret dramas, to dream, signs, and, and stars. Also, they're not from the Jewish faith. They're pagans. They're Gentiles. Again, God is using the unusual people the normal day-to-day people to bring forth his message. He's not, he's not using what we would think we would use, like the famous people. No, he's using people that not normally would be drawn to be part of a story of radical grace, right? But they, he does. And we see that they came from a region of ancient Babylon. That could be either current-day Iraq or a part of Persia region, which could be Syria or Jordan. That's kind of the era that they probably had come from, which meant they traveled afar, right? And so they come. They come asking a question. Now, we don't know how much they know about Scripture and the promised Messiah. They probably knew some. They probably knew some of, the, some of their Old Testament knowledge might have come through the book of Daniel. But they also might have known this prophecy or this interaction in Numbers. And I like what um, Greg Lanner, assistant professor at RTS in Orlando, says this. He says, that Magi's were experts in such astral phenomena. What about this star drew them to Jerusalem? The most plausible explanation lies in Israel's scriptures. As learned men who interacted with various religious literature, the Magi would have been familiar with Jewish political or messianic oracles. And one of the central political prophecies in Hebrew scripture is Balaam's oracle. And so this took place in Numbers Numbers 22 through 24. It's important. We, Old Testament is important because it's pointing us to the Messiah. It's pointing us to the, that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. So in this encounter, Balak of Moab summons a pagan, Balaam, to curse Israel. Balaam was a performer of incarnations and deviations. He came from the east, the, um, Numbers 23 says, and was labeled a magi. But this pagan seer, otherwise a scoundrel, 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 I can't even say that word, blessed Israel by prophesizing its deliverer king via the symbol, listen, of a star. Says this, I see him now, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. And it says this in Numbers 24, 17, a star will rise out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. See, the future figure that Numbers is talking about is described as a man from Jacob's seed who will rule many nations. And of great importance in Numbers 24, 14 is the verb that is used. It said the star will arise. See, Matthew alludes to this in in chapter 2, verse 2, and also in verse 9, with the magi seeing the star 
in its rising, which derived from the word in Numbers 24, 17. Now, Matthew does not specify whether it was a supernova or a comet or planetary conjunction or other supernatural event, only that it arose, it appeared. Then he says, Balaam's star article was read messianically in other early writings. So what does that mean for us? Or it means for us that the star that was given to, to the magi, to the wise men, communicates that God is willing to condescend, right? He's willing to come to our level of maturity and communicate the truth about Jesus, the truth about his son, the truth that he's the savior and the king of the world. In fact, Lanner concludes about the star. He says, in short, the star is fulfilled a well-known Jewish messianic prophecy within a broader ancient sensitivity to astrological politics. The Magi observed the star and recognized that the true king of Israel, the one promised by God of old, not the one appointed by Caesar, whose neurotic obsession for self-preservation was exasperated by the star, this, but the other one has entered the world. It is a fascinating collision of earthly revelation with divine revelation through the mouth of a pagan. That is what prompted the Magi to look for Jesus in Jerusalem. God condescending to the wise men, to the Magi, to show them, to lead them to the Savior, Jesus. And how do they respond? They do come, and they come to worship him by giving gifts, by bowing down their lives before him. They, unlike the religious leaders and the people of the day, they heard the message and they acted on it. They showed their belief and their devotion to know Jesus by traveling a long distance, costing them much money and much time. And they gave costly gifts of gold and of frankincense and mirth, the best and costliest, the costliness of spices. These gifts are set apart for royalty and for kings. Now they scarcely could realize what was going on. But listen, Matthew is recording these things to show us that other Old Testament passages were fulfilled as well through Gentiles bringing their wealth to Israel's king. And in Psalm 72, it says this, May the kings of Tarnish and the coastland render them tribute. May the kings of Sheba bring gifts. May all the kings fall down before him. All the nations serve him. This is messianic prophecy that has been, has been said here. And Jesus is fulfilling that. In Isaiah 60, the prophet Isaiah says this, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midia and Ephra. All from Sheba shall come, and they shall bring gold and frankincense, they shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. The story is unfolding, right? The Old Testament shows us the Messiah is coming in a certain way. Jesus has fulfilled every aspect of, of the prophecy based on his birth and his life and his resurrection and his death and his ascension. And as, as, the, as the wise men, as the Magi began to understand what it meant as God came to them speaking their language, they came to worship this Jesus, the Savior of the world. And we see again how God's interest is to bring that salvation, not only to the Jewish people, but to all nations. 
And as the gospel reached the hearts of these wise men, now the gospel, as they went back to their homeland, they were the first Gentile evangelists of the Christian area, much like the shepherds were the first evangelists in the Christian area. Now we have the Gentiles going forth, sharing the good news that the Savior is born, and it is Jesus. So the question for us this morning is, where is your response? Are you vigilantly against Jesus, unwilling to submit your life unto the Lordship of Christ who deserves it? Are you religiously against Jesus? Well, you know all the right answers, but it hasn't really affected you at all. And you become prideful of what you do or who, what you think. Are you complacent against Jesus where, yeah, I've heard the story again and again and again and again and it's just not really resonating with me? Or are you much like the wise men as they hear the news? Or like Mary and the shepherds and Joseph when they heard the news? And I like what Mary, what Mary does. She pondered and treasured in her heart. See, do we have a jealous heart like Herod, or do we have an expected heart like the Magi? Do we have a bitter heart like the religious leaders, or do we have a grateful heart that the Savior is born like the wise men? Do we have a resistant heart much like the people of God, or do we have a devoted heart? Friends, it can be very easy to miss the king this season. Broken relationships, family stresses and drama, academic pressures, wars and rumors of war, health issues, our diverse country, divisive country. But this message reminds us, this passage and the wise men remind us for us not to miss the king this Christmas season. Embrace him. And as you embrace him, you will find life and hope, meaning and purpose, joy and freedom. You see, his incarnation shows us that he, in fact, has embraced us before we even would embrace him. He embraced us. He has a heart for us, for he has saved us, and he delights to make us his very own. Don't miss the king. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, it's so easy to miss the king. It's so many ways that we do it. And yet, Lord, through your grace, through your Son, through this passage, it reminds us that the Messiah is here. He has come. And the Messiah is in Jesus. Father, we need to do something about that. We're responding. We're either vigilantly against it, we're religiously against it, we're just complacent against it, or we will come and bow down worship and treasure and our lives are radically changed by the grace of the gospel the grace of this news do your work of grace among us lord draw us to yourself those who believe and those who do not help us to ponder and treasure these very powerful words oh jesus come and enter in and make us new and make us people who delight in you and show you to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us respond in song.